Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today we have with us Robert Wright. He is the founder of Wright Law Office, PLLC a boutique virtual law practice that helps e-commerce sellers across the globe protect and scale their online businesses. That's what we are all about. Robert is also a seller, and he did that on purpose so he could understand the frustrations of us sellers. And he has helped hundreds of e-commerce sellers all over the world. And Robert is here with us today. Robert, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Pleasure having you here, Robert. So, I want to start with the the lawyer part. Sure. Is was there anything that made you um, made you pick being a lawyer? Was it in the family, or was it something random? Oh, it was it was uh, it was kind of random osmosis. I think is is the short answer. I uh, you know people ask me you know do you have lawyers in your family? How did you gravitate towards the law? It, I actually kind of blame my mom. Quote unquote blame. You know, is she was you know she was as we were. You know, staying home as a kid, she loved courtroom dramas. And so, you know, oh. Perry Mason was always on the TV. Matlock was on the TV. Law and Order was on the TV. And so I'm just running around, you know, playing with toys and, you know, legal stuff going on in the background. And I think that just from an, from an early stage kind of exposed me to, to law. It was always neat. There was some lawyer in a courtroom serving justice in front of a jury, making this grandiose speech. And I just thought, I thought that was really interesting. And as I moved off into college and, and finally had to figure out, well, what am I going to do with my life? What do I want to do? I uh, initially kind of started down a, a psychology route, uh, took a psych 101 and absolutely hated and said, this is, I don't want anything to do with this stuff. But it was also taking a government class at that time and really enjoyed it. You know, how do you, you know, it, and at its essence, government's about law. And so like that and took another class and that led into a constitutional law class, which I loved and an international law class, which I, I just was enamored by. And before you know it, I had enough credits to be a government major and what do government majors do? They go off to law school. And, and you know, so that's kind of the path that, that led me to the law. Now, what specifically led me to intellectual property that was this, while well, all of that was happening and I'm trying to navigate psychology versus government versus something else, I was in college during kind of the heyday of Napster and the internet being what it's, what it's ultimately come to be, you know, and file sharing was a thing. And, and frankly, admittedly, I thought file sharing was great. I thought it was amazing that technology could be used to, you know, take a music collection that was pretty minuscule and overnight, you know, be volumes and volumes of all of your favorite songs. And so I, I just thought that was great. That's what the internet was all about. That's what technology is supposed to do. They teach you day one of kindergarten that you're supposed to share with your friends. Surely there's nothing wrong with sharing your music with your friends. And when all that got shut down was about the time that I was headed into law school. And I thought, you know what? I just want to understand why that's so bad. That just seems so counterintuitive. It seems so wrong. And as I started peeling back the layers of the onion, as it were, I understood that was intellectual property law and I understood that that was copyrights and trademarks and patents and, you know, the, the types of people that deal with those issues are, are entrepreneurs, they're innovators, they're creative types. And I just, I loved that. I fell in love with it. I was fascinated by it. I, I quickly learned that, 
you know, sharing music with not with your friends is not sharing music. It's actually stealing from artists. Yeah. That's how copyright law works. And uh, just as I launched my practice, I really zeroed in on, I've seen so many people in, in the law, uh, you know, land in a practice that they just don't, they're not passionate about, they don't love. And I just, I committed to, I didn't want that to be me. And so um, I said, I'm going to do IP. I hung my shingle really with an eye towards helping all small business owners. But over the course of time, that quickly evolved into, into helping e-commerce sellers and specifically private label sellers. I've been doing that for years. And uh, as a Grateful Dead would say, what a long, strange trip it's been. It absolutely has been, but it's been, it's been a ton of fun along the way too. Ah, that's an incredible story. You know, it's, it's, it's cool that you, you did go niche down to e-commerce. And it's, I, right about now, it's probably not correct to say niche down because e-commerce now is it's so huge. So big, right? Yeah, everybody's when, in e-com. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But when you did it uh, years ago, it was, um, it was probably still niching down, right? Going down to find something uh, that's more more yeah more niche <laughs> yeah, no it, it it really is you know and it's interesting i mean you know it, it kind of come hurtling out of law school you know i mean there's you know folks that kind of go the traditional big firm route there's folks that go and you know they work on the, on the criminal side of things maybe in the prosecutor's office or you know defense attorney there's insurance firms that you can go and work for there's not really there's not a lot of you've seen this kind of change here in the last couple years but there's not a lot of boutique firms that really niche down that specialize in, in certain areas of the law. And, uh, you know, as I was looking at that business landscape, it just, it made sense to me, you know, small business owners in particular don't necessarily want to avail themselves of some large firm. They don't have the money for that. They don't want to kind of do it yourself service like a legal zoom or a trademark here. You know, there's a number of services out there. They want somebody to help them out, but they have very specific legal needs. And so really it's like any good business, you know, kind of starting with your ideal customer and working backwards. I thought, okay, what do small business owners that are doing business on the internet, whether, you know, they're infopreneurs or they're, they're e-commerce sellers, whether they've got a coaching service, what do they need, right? What kind of legal things that, you know, do, do, do they need to kind of protect themselves as they do business online? I really started backwards from there to, to shape my practice. I don't do everything uh, for everybody. That's not what I'm, I'm meant to do. It's if I, if I can help you, I'm certainly happy to help you and I'll, I'll tell you what I can do for you. And if I can't, I'm happy to connect the dots and get you in front of somebody that, that I can. I do what I do. I'm very comfortable in my space. I feel like I do it well. And uh, that's good enough for me. Sometimes enough is, is more than enough. So that's, that's, that's what I do for folks. The beauty of it is that you speak the same language that the sellers do, right? So yeah. If I say something like I have hijackers on my listing, you, I, I you know, know what you're talking about because I've been hijacked. And let me tell you, it's not a fun experience. I, I tell you, that's a, I mean, that's been a really humbling experience of, of kind of having to, to take your own medicine, right? It's really easy for you to come to me as a client and say, oh, I've been hijacked and I can wax philosophical about trademarks and copyrights and mm -hmm. counterfeiting and all that sort of stuff. And then I would send you on your way or help you and it's, I'm at arm's length from you to, with some respect, but when it's you yourself as the client, it's a really different experience. I was in my, my Facebook group earlier today kind of talking through my own hijacking experience and, and just kind of the emotional roller coaster that, I mean, when that happens to you, when someone's stolen that buy box and they're taking food off your table, I mean, they've literally they're stealing your sales, that you get angry, you get mad, you know, logic and reason kind of gets tossed out the door and you want to, you want to hurt somebody, you know, cause they're hurting you. But then having to take that deep breath to step back and say, okay, 
I've got to work this problem. Like, what's the problem? The problem is this person has the buy box. Okay, well, what do I know about, you know, am I brand registered? Am I able to avail myself of you know, kind of the counterfeit enforcement desk? Okay, cool. I can go down that path. Oh, I'm not brand registered. Oh, what do I do? Well, wait a minute. I can use Amazon's terms of service to my benefit. I know that in order to sell on a detail page, whatever's being sold has to match that detail page 100%. So maybe I can figure out a strategy for figuring out, you know, if there's any differences between what's being sold and what's on the detail page. Really working that problem logically, methodically, leaving emotion at the door, and then hoping for the results that you want. Um, it's, a, it's a real process. It's a humbling process, but it's a very purposeful experience. I mean, you know, my, my story is, you know, as I, as I, you know, e-commerce generally is a nice niche, but private label selling is even a sub-niche of that, right? And as, as clients presented themselves to me, as they came through my virtual doors and said, I've been hijacked, can you help? Can you help me get brand registered? Do you do brand gating? They brought all this Amazon specific nomenclature and language to me. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, help me understand. And as they're explaining it to it, I thought, you know what? I just want to learn more. And the only way I'm going to be able to actually learn more and stand in the shoes of my clients so that I can provide them the best counsel possible is to, to get in their shoes. And so, you know, went to a mentor, went to the folks over at Marketplace Superheroes, Robert Ricky and Steven Summers and said, guys, teach me, teach me how to do this. Like, show me how to do this. And slowly and methodically worked through the process. You know, legal degrees left at the door, college degrees left at the door, but really starting from ground zero, like everybody does to grow and, and you know, find a product, find a supplier, negotiate with a supplier, arrange the logistics, get the items shoved into Amazon, create the detail page, get the photos, optimize the keywords, all the things that we all do to sell on Amazon, experiencing that journey from, I just want to go find a product to actually having a listing live and then understanding all the things that can happen after that listing's live. Um, to me, it's been the most transformative experience in my law practice because when somebody comes to me and they say, I've been hijacked or somebody copied my listing or Amazon saying you need a plan of action I get it. I, number one, I understand why it why it matters, right? I'm not just you know saying oh, it's no big deal. Just you can figure it out. You you know we can we can fire off a letter to Amazon's legal department. Amazon's legal department's not going to pay attention to you. You've got to work the process. If they're saying you need a plan of action, maybe you didn't even really do anything wrong. You got to give them a plan of action because that's what they're asking for. That's the that's the price to pay for selling in the biggest mall in the, in the world. And you've got to you just got to follow the directions that are given to you. I absolutely agree. And uh, you, you mentioned you went to Stephen Summers. I, I know Stephen, and he yeah. is—he's a pro. Oh yeah. So, so that you you went to the top right away. So uh, I—that's—I I certainly believe that as well. I've known uh, I've known Stephen for a number of years, and certainly his business partner Robert as well. Uh, two top shelf people, uh, just as individuals, but certainly uh, if you're looking to learn the intricacies of, of launching a product, uh, their methodology of kind of boring, simple non-sexy, you know, does what it says on the tin sort of products as a different sort of approach to selling private label. Uh, it's one that's, you know, I, I subscribe to and it's worked well for me, uh, but, but great folks over there at Marketplace for sure. Yeah. You mentioned uh, people ask you about brand registry and brand gating. Yeah. Is it possible to still to do brand gating on oh, purpose? It's, it's, uh, it was interesting. Uh, about two and a half years ago, I guess it was, uh, there was a significant uptick in requests for brand gating. So what is brand gating? Brand gating is effectively, if we start from the premise that 
you don't own your listings, Amazon does. Um, gating was effectively, Amazon would only allow one seller, you, to sell on that listing. So even though it wasn't your listing, it, it really, in practical terms, it was. Um, Amazon was doing that just kind of naturally, generally for larger sellers uh, without even asking. Uh, but for whatever reason, Amazon kind of cracked open the door. And this was pre-brand registry 2.0, which I, I almost wonder, I don't have any inside baseball here, but I almost wonder if they were trying to kind of figure out the best way for brands to protect the legitimacy of their brands on the platform. And because of that, as part of that experimental process, they cracked the door open for brand gating. And if you were to able to demonstrate certain circumstances, you know, significant amounts of counterfeiting, uh, significant administrative burden on Amazon sides, if you're filing complaints all the time and you're just basically, you know, tying up their team constantly, if the products at issue were such that the quality mattered, meaning like nutritional supplements and Amazon had a vested interest making sure that only, you know, uh, supplements that hadn't expired, they had been manufactured in a proper way, were getting in front of consumers. If the stars all aligned and you had a little bit of luck thrown in there, Amazon would gate your listing and you could all of a sudden remove all these hijackers, all these third-party sellers, all these other people leveraging your listing so that you could take all the sales. So there's a great benefit to being gated. Um, it still exists. Amazon will do that for, for some sellers. Uh, you know, if you've been historically gated, you know, that should still uh, still exist for you. But in terms of petitioning Amazon, I haven't seen that happen in years. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is Amazon has purposefully created programs that, that they're trying to empower brand owners to protect their brands online, right? So brand registry has been around for years, but it was this loose kind of informal program. You could participate in it. You would get a nicer listing and they might pay a little bit more attention to you if if there were a problem, but it wasn't really a formal sort of thing that you had to enroll in or really worry about. It was a nice to have. With Brand Registry 2.0, where Amazon said, listen, we have this program, and if you participate, we will give you better listings, we'll give you enhanced brand content, and that's going to increase your conversion rate. We're going to give you additional advertising opportunities beyond PPC. Video ads, you want them, great. Yeah, brand registry will help you get that. Sponsor brand, you want to showcase all your products as, as a brand, we can do that, boom, you get that. And then, oh, by the way, if you're having hijacking problems, if you're having leeches on your listing, they're just kind of siphoning away sales. You think people are selling products that are inauthentic in association with your brand, we'll give you access to a, a brand support desk, staff 24-7, 365, you can file a complaint, take care of those problems you know, right away, but you have to have a registered trademark. That's the line in the sand. We're going to give you all these serious business benefits if you treat your business seriously and serious businesses register trademarks. So you have to have one to play in that playground. And so, you know, that, that to me was a real line in the sand, a real defining moment for brands on Amazon of, of, of Amazon saying, listen, we want legitimacy on this platform. We want a good seller experience. We want you as a brand to feel comfortable selling on Amazon. And so we're going to give you a mechanism that you can avail yourself of that's going to help you have a better seller experience which, oh, by the way, is actually going to drive a better customer experience too through better listings and, and you know, videos and, you know, just enhanced brand content is frankly amazing in terms of the, of, you know, the, the experience that it gives customers. Um, we'll give you that, right? And we'll also create programs like transparency where if you are worried about people selling on your listing that shouldn't be, we'll give you special codes that you can put on your product. And as product comes inbound, we'll take a look at it. And if, it, if it's a transparency skew, it's a transparency brand, if that product trying to be shipped in our warehouses doesn't have that code, 
we'll kick it out. We'll destroy it. We'll get rid of it. We'll help you there, seller community. And oh, by the way, we love innovation. Project Zero, we're going to get an AI that's running across the platform and helping take care of counterfeiting and infringement before you can even report it to you. Amazon gets a lot of salt thrown its way because it's a big company and it's easy to throw salt and poke holes and just pick at large companies because they never move as quickly as we want them to move. But I will tell you, in the last, literally the last two years, those three programs that I talked about, those are significant programs that Amazon has launched that are not only intended with helping sellers, but also giving a better customer experience. I, I think that's a feather in Amazon's cap. Are they perfect? No. But as a seller on Amazon, do I take great comfort in the fact that between brand registry, transparency, Project Zero, although it's invite only currently, uh, I've at least got some, some clubs in my bag to be able to, to sell securely and safely on Amazon. Got a lot of options there. Beautiful. I will tell you something that, that happened with one of my brands. Okay. So all, all my brands are, are trademarked and okay. have brand registry. Good. Although one of them had the, the very first brand registry Okay. That you didn't require a trademark. So basically, you have a trademark, yeah. we would request it and we had to take pictures of the product uh -huh. and the product needed to have the logo on them. And that yeah. was it. That was pretty and, much it. Yeah, it was very informal, right? I mean, yeah. you, you signed up for the program, but it was pretty loose at that point. For sure. Yes. And uh, it was approved. And my brand is gated. Okay. 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 So when Brand Registry 2.0 came around, mm -hmm. I didn't... I didn't switch to the 2.0. So right now, that brand is gated, okay. but not brand registered. So okay. if every time I want to change my own listings, uh -huh. I need to contact support. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, I'm the brand registered owner. Please do these changes. Yeah. Some, some of the support, they come back and, yes, sorry, uh, changes have been done. Others say, no, you are not brand registered. Because technically that's the old one, but I don't want to change because I'm afraid I'll lose my brand registry. And that is safety right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough spot. So, you know, as you were kind of talking about like the old and the new and, and what you did see, especially early days of, two, of brand registry 2.0, there were a lot of sellers that were like, well, wait a minute, I'm already brand registered. I don't even need to worry about this mm -hmm. trademark thing. I'm good. I've got it. I'll be grandfathered. And in fact, many were for a good period of time. Mm -hmm. What I've seen is Brand Registry 2.0's matured. That, that list of kind of grandfathered brand registries is slowly starting to wean away. And, and so, you know, is, is, you're in a tough spot because you have the crown jewel of everything. Mm -hmm. You have the brand, brand gating, right? Which is, yeah. which is a very important thing. And it's a very, I mean, it's the unicorn, basically. I mean, you have a unicorn uh, at, at your disposal, yeah. which, is, which is awesome. My, my ultimate concern, and, and I don't know that there's a, a, a right way or a wrong way to play this, but over the course of time, my guess is that gets chipped away and they're going to say, listen, you've got to be brand registered because we only, you know, the brand registry 2.0 is what it is. We only speak to people that are participating in this brand. I mean, I've even seen some weird instances of brand owners who allowed someone else to brand register for them and then now they're effectively locked out of the brand. There's a lot of wow. weirdness that can happen if you're not very, one, if you're not participating in the brand registry program, and two, if you're not very careful and mindful of, of how, uh, who's in there with you, basically. Yeah. And so I wouldn't be surprised if long-term that gating goes away and that, that you have continued difficulties and disconnect 
on the Amazon side of things. Some people familiar with 1.0 and how that works and how your status is updated in the system versus people that are newer to the backend support. And they're like, listen, you're not in 2.0. We're not even speaking to you. That's kind of the, the, that's the variable and the whole thing is a human factor, right? And whether you're dealing with Amazon kind of on an ASIN specific issue or if it's an account uh, sort of basis, your mileage is going to vary in terms of who you speak with and, and who you talk to. I mean, I have spoken with, you know, people on the account health team, uh, for example, on you know, trying to get an account verified that are incredibly helpful, that will go above and beyond to, to, to explain what the issue is and get you where you need to be to get you the resolution that you're looking for. And then I've dealt with people on that same team, and I'm not throwing salt at that particular team, mm-hmm. but just showing, you know, that's a kind of a sophisticated, dedicated team that's more advanced than kind of your seller performance team that just weren't, you know, weren't all that great. And they were just, kind of, I don't want to say mailing it in, but kind of a little less helpful than I would have expected them to be. We yeah. forget that on the back end of all of this, while we care about our listings and our listings are our business and our livelihoods, there's, there's a lot of people, you know, that are, are getting paid an hourly rate, that are being overwhelmed with work, that are getting, they're dealing with angry people on the other side of the phone. Yes. And it, your mileage is going to vary. And so my, one of my, you know, people will ask me oftentimes, well, how do you, how do you deal with Amazon? You know, do you threaten them? Do you, do you, uh, you know, bring your, your legal, you know, <laughs> stuff to bear? You're pounding your fist. I'm like, no, actually I try to be overly kind because the times I've, I've seen Amazon move at my request, I've been given feedback that it's because I didn't threaten them with a lawsuit. It's because I didn't yell at them. It was because I was polite. And I kind of was, it was just nice enough to deal with, right? And I also, you know, you, you, we have a saying in the South that you catch more bees with honey than you do vinegar. I really think it's true. Like these people that we're dealing with, we're calling into, sure, we're upset, we're angry, we're frustrated. Something bad has happened to us if our account is down or we've been suspended. Uh, and maybe it's justly or unjustly. Maybe we're confused. Maybe someone, you know, some black hat tactic has been used against us to get our listing removed. Uh, you know, who knows what the circumstances are, but the person you're speaking with on that phone, it didn't cause that problem, right? And they are dealing with people that are angry with them constantly. So if you work from that basis, you work from that assumption, stand out to them, be a little bit nicer, be a little bit more polite than maybe you normally would be. And maybe, just maybe, you get the opportunity for them to move in your direction and kind of hear your case in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, because they're just they're immune to just people being so, so upset and short and, and angry. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, shoot rainbows and, and throw unicorns here and lollipops, but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes a little bit of kindness will go a long way dealing with Amazon. I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, I often think if I was the support rep, mm-hmm. would I be even worried about any kind of threats? No. Yeah. What if the person was kind, of course, they would get a kind response. I'd probably go out on my way a little bit more to help them out. So that is, that's the way, that's the way human minds work. Because if you feel threatened, you're not going to go out of your way to try to help anybody. You're going to do the bare minimum possible. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, I'm not, you're going to, people are going to listen to this and say, this Robert guy is like, you know, rainbows and lollipops and (laughs) neighbors. No, but, but there's a good degree in business and law, frankly, just in life of psychology that exists, right? And so if you're trying to, you know, when I'm on the phone with someone from account health or seller performance, or I'm trying to advocate for a client, 
nobody wants to hear about my law degree. Nobody wants to hear you know, me being threatening. I'm trying to build rapport. It's like any good negotiator does. I'm trying to build rapport. I'm trying to create a relationship so that you're going to help me, help me help you, right? Like, you know, you don't want this in your queue. I'm sure we've just input some information incorrectly. Could you just give us some guidance? Say, you know, help us figure out what we're missing here. You know, that sort of thing. Like, it's amazing just with that sort of approach of, you know, kindness, non-threatening, help me help you sort of mentality will it'll it'll achieve some really good results for you absolutely so one of the things that a lot of a lot of sellers don't, amazon sellers don't think about is on other markets you're also going to need ip protection if you're a shopify seller or yeah. a walmart seller uh what kind of ip protection are those sellers getting or should get yeah no it's a it's a good question and i mean you know i i it's funny earlier today i was working with a with a uh a client, they're a newer seller, I and mean, they've literally, they're just taking a course and they're trying to find a product. And, and really her question was just like, what am I, what do I need to know? Right. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about business organization and why you want to run your business through a proper business entity. So you, you isolate your personal assets, you remove them from the field of play, they're protected. And then we were talking about, you know, brands and, and products. And I said, listen, you know, a lot of sellers, whether they're Amazon, Shopify, eBay, Walmart, you know, whatever, whatever marketplace you're in, if you're selling a, a physical product, you, you may have, you know, invented that product, right? I mean, you may have designed that product yourself. And if that's the case, you, know, you need to think about, you know, is this something that's patentable, not only from a utility perspective, but maybe a design perspective, right? There, there's, there's nuances in it. So if you're a creator and you're making a product, certainly think about patent. And is there some unique, novel, non-obvious usefulness to the item if there is there's the potential for a utility patent if the design of the of the item that you've created uh you know has some sort of aesthetic functionality to it okay maybe a design patent is something that you want to investigate and what you want to invest in you know i'm a big fan and a big believer that as you grow and scale a business certainly you have to have good financials you have to have a a good profit and loss sheet profit and loss statement you got to have a good balance sheet you got to have good sales and all those sorts of things, but you also need a portfolio of intellectual property protection. And so if you're a creator, you know, making something from the ground up, sketching it out, inventing it, certainly think about, you know, evaluating the opportunities for patenting that great, tremendous benefits in patents, you know, with a, with a utility patent, it's 20 years of exclusivity, 20 years of monopoly where you're the only game in town. You're the only person, the only company that can make it, sell it, do anything with it. I mean, that 20 years, two decades of exploiting a product, it's a really, really powerful tool to have. Design patent similarly, 14. I mean, that's still the look of an item being able to be the only game in town. Again, really, really powerful, something to evaluate. But let's say you're not doing that. Let's say you really are sourcing something that already sits on a shelf somewhere, whether it's China, the Philippines, India, wherever, it doesn't matter, right? But something that already exists, somebody else already created, when you're slapping your brand on it, that's a trademark, right? Names, logos, slogans, anything you're using to distinguish your product from everybody else's in the marketplace is a trademark and it should be protected as such, right? When I think about trademarks, I kind of have two rules of thumbs uh, in terms of, of branding. One, you want a mark that functions as a trademark. Ideally, you want a brand name that is invented. It's coined, it's made up, right? The more descriptive your brand name is of the product, the worst off you are because trademarks just by their very nature 
distinguished products from others in the marketplace that are similar, right? So if, you have, if you're selling a spatula and your brand name is Terrific Spatulas, it's a horrible trademark, right? You're just ex- describing that you sell Terrific Spatulas that by its very nature, that branding can't function as a trademark. So we want to make sure that our mark functions as a trademark. Secondly, we want to make sure that it's available. I see this I see this mistake with entrepreneurs over and over and over again. They will wake up in the middle of the night with this great epiphany. My brand's gonna be this, right? And they will think Nike. Nike. Yeah, I'm gonna have Nike. It's a great no one's yeah, it's it's perfect. It means something to me. It, you know, it's whatever. If you've thought about it, more than likely somebody else has thought about it, right? So as you choose that brand name, I would beg, I would plead with you, at least do some degree of diligence around has somebody else already using that name or something similar. And the good news is there's a number of publicly available resources for you to be able to do this. Now, your best practice, your first port of call should be a formal brand clearance search with an IP professional. I have a piece of software that I use. It's AI driven. You plug in the brand name, it goes out and finds all the linguistically similar marks. It generates a report and I can look at that, inject the person, the human element into it, sit with my client, really kind of explain Okay, here's you're you're free in the in the clear. You're able to use it. You can't use it at all because somebody else has already used the exact same thing. Or we need to proceed with caution. Like you can use it, but I'm a little bit concerned about these other similar marks and these other similar products. You can use it now, but if you want to grow and expand this brand, you might be limited. So let's talk about that. So that's that's best practice. But in the absence of that, Google is your friend. Amazon is your friend, or whatever marketplace you're selling in. Plug your brand name in and see what pops. Domain searches, you know, generally speaking, if you're unable to get a domain name for your brand name, you're going to have some, some struggles and challenges. Somebody's probably already using that for something similar. So, so avoid that. And then government websites. So USPTO.gov, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, has a free publicly available trademark search that you can use. The UK has the same thing. Australia has the same thing. Whatever marketplace you're looking to enter, you're going to want to at least go over and look, is my brand name available? Somebody else already using it. Uh, you know, so again, I don't care whether you sell on Amazon and you need a trademark to be brand registered or you sell on Walmart or Jet or Shopify, whatever it is, you've got to make sure that the name you've chosen for your products is free and clear to use and it's protectable. It functions as a trademark. Then the second biggest mistake I see sellers make of any stripe are not taking ownership in their copyrightable works. Your product photos, your sales copy, your retail packaging, all, all of those things are copyrightable works. And the way that copyright works is so counterintuitive to, the, to how you would think it would work. Normally you think, if I pay for something, I own it. When I hand you $5 and you give me, you know, whatever the thing is back uh, that I'm looking to purchase, I own that, it's, it's easy. Copyright doesn't work that way. Copyright is very, very, very respectful of authors, right? And so when you go to a photographer and say, hey, Mr. Photographer, take some product photos for me, and he gives you those JPEGs, you own those JPEG files, but he, Mr. Photographer, continues to own the copyright unless you have a specialized agreement in place. It's called a work for hire agreement or maybe a copyright assignment agreement. But long story short, I see so many people They'll go out, they get all these product photos created, they'll get retail packaging done, they'll have logos designed, they'll have you know, Instagram photos created, whatever it is, and they're using them free and clear, but they actually don't own what they're using, which when you go to sell a business, you want, it, you want someone to drive down the price, that's a really easy way for that to happen. So a little bit of, a little prevention's worth a pound of cure, 
along the way, just having a work for hire agreement in place that you can give to photographers, you can give to logo designers, packaging designers, so that you can actually own your copyrights is going to help you not only in the short term, but also the long term. Short term, brand registry on Amazon's platforms did a great job of tamping down hijacking because hijackers know, okay, you know, this is a brand registered brand. I can tell from the listing, they're going to report me. Amazon's going to take me down and I'm going to get in trouble. I don't want to do that. So in its stead, I have seen something that's almost become pervasive is people copying product photos, even listing pages, creating new pages and just selling on a new page. It's a different flavor of hijacking, but it's hijacking nonetheless. I encourage you, if you haven't already, head on over to Alibaba, head on over to eBay, plug your brand name in and see what pops. It is very disconcerting to me to see people, suppliers on Alibaba scanning the Amazon marketplace, seeing you know, what kind of traffic are running to Shopify sites, what's popular with consumers and saying, hey, we can make this for you and using your product photos to do it. It happens every single day. The good news is if you own your copyrights, there is the most effective mechanism in the world to be able to handle your business there. My record is 47 minutes from the time I submitted a complaint to Amazon to the time that that competing listing was taken down. Wow. And it's because they, this, this nefarious person had copied product photos. My client had registered copyrights, 47 minutes. To get Amazon to do anything in 47 minutes, it has nothing to do with me as a lawyer. It literally has to do with the client and the fact that they were dotting their I's, crossing their T's, they, they were handling their business. And because of that, Amazon handled, handled their business as well. Robert, so that is, it, it's great what you shared, although it's a little bit scary that some people may think that the logo that they did for five bucks on Fiverr.com, yeah. that- Might not own, right? Exactly, like, oh, they may not own it. Yeah. And the brand, the brand may be a decent size today. Yeah. And if the person that made that logo knows that law, they can come back to haunt you big they time. Have, they absolutely can. Now, let me set minds at ease because I know we all love Fiverr. We love 99designs. There's a number of kind of popular sites out there. I will tell you, thankfully, Fiverr is a good one. If you scroll to Fiverr's terms of service, go down all the way down to the bottom, check out the terms of service. Fiverr knows how copyright law works. And so they've actually contracted around it. Fiverr's rules, at least as the, as the time of this podcast, they can always change these because yeah. of Fiverr's rules. But as of the date of this podcast, the way that Fiverr works, unless the person performing the gig otherwise says that they own the copyright, the copyright is naturally transferred to you, the gig purchaser. That's per Fiverr's terms of service. So if you have a logo, you bought it on Fiverr, you're really worried, oh my goodness, I might not actually own it. This Robert guy is scaring me to death. I will give you some degree of comfort that Fiverr's terms naturally help you in that respect. Now, be very, very careful. And frankly, this is one of those, you know, kind of decision criteria is you're evaluating people on fiber. Find the ones that, um, you know, that are aware of this, right? And, and you know, if, if, if someone says, you know, for five more dollars, I'll formally give you copyright ownership. Great. I'm willing to pay five more dollars for that. I don't want to have to rely upon some website terms of service somewhere. I like something crystal clear. When I'm doing business on fiber, I have a simple work for hire agreement that I'll say, listen, I, you know, I want to move forward with your gig. Uh, happy to, happy to, to, to do that. It looks like you do great work, but I'm, you know, I'm a legal guy, right? I've got a contract. Can you sign it? I just want to make sure that there's no question about, you know, the title of this, this logo that you're making for me coming over to me. Uh, you know, again, people with legal documents, there's always this hesitancy in the entrepreneur community about, oh, I don't need a contract. Contracts are too formal. They're too legal. You don't have to have, 
I think the best contract is one that is simple and plain spoken. What I'm advising you about with a work for hire agreement or a copyright assignment agreement, it literally can be a single page. It can be a single paragraph. There's a little bit of magic language that needs to be in there, but it doesn't need to be some 30 page contract, especially if you don't have a lawyer drafting it. You don't really know what you're doing. Don't just find templates on the internet and start slinging them in front of people. Have somebody to sit down with you that knows what they're doing and say, listen, I just, I don't want all the bells and whistles. I just need something bare bones. I need just a simple statement that's going to transfer these logos to me or these photos to me or these packaging designs to me. Can you put something together around that? I don't want something overly lawyered. And, and I'm telling you, the legal community will listen to you. Lawyers, naturally, we, we see risk everywhere. That's how we're trained. That's what we do. And we are inclined to eliminate all that risk in a contract. But if a client comes and says, listen, I know this thing could be 40 pages and I know there's all sorts of things to be thinking about, but that's not how I run my business. I want simple, give me simple, then we'll tailor it that way. You know, that's, that's what we do as, as advisors. Very good. I like that. So as an entrepreneur starting out, mm-hmm. at, one po- at what point of their business or startup are they going to need a lawyer? Is it like on day one? or after the business is started and going? You know, I, I think it's, it's a good question, right? Like all my training says, no, you need a lawyer from day one. But that's, you know, the business person in me says, no, that's not true, right? There's, you know, Facebook's, you know, a mantra of move fast to break things. There's very much a, a, a real reason behind that mantra. And, and, and being an entrepreneur means that you, I hate the word hustle, but you have to hustle. And sometimes you got to bootstrap and streamline. And, you know, you're not... You know, if you're not launching a, a million dollar business on day one because you don't have a million dollars, you're going to have to make some tough choices, right? So if you are a new entrepreneur um, starting out, and I'll actually turn clients away if it's not time for this, you don't want to suffocate your business it, it, you know, with, with organizing companies and registering trademarks and doing copyrights and getting contracts in place. If that is going to suffocate your business and prevent you from getting products to market or courses created or coaching done then you shouldn't do it. If you don't have products, you don't have a business. So products always have to come first, right? Now, once you've got a little bit of momentum, you know, I always recommend to folks, especially early days, is you kind of sketch out your budget, whether it's $1,000 or $6,000 or $60,000, whatever it is. Legal should be a line item in that budget. You're going to need to organize a company, right? You're going to need a legal system, a legal service, a lawyer to help you do that. That's just the cost of, of doing business. So have that as a line item budget. Have that on the roadmap. Have that on the plan. Doesn't mean that you have to do it day one, but the more quickly you get products to market, the more quickly your business grows and expands, the more risk you're taking on. And so early days, you're going to want to form, I mean, this is kind of my first protocol with all clients is form a company. As soon as you have money in your legal coffers, form a business entity and start running all of your business through that. And I say that because until you do that, you are the business and the business is you, meaning that your personal bank account, your house, your car, your savings, all of that is at risk. And that might be fine if you've got $1,000 in the pocket to start off this side hustle and to get a product at Amazon. But as you start to get that product in front of more people, the risk goes up. And so you want to take your assets, remove them from the field of play and have only the business assets at risk. The only way you can do that is through operating through a proper corporate vehicle. So if you're in Canada, it could be a Canadian national company, Canadian corporation. If you're in the States, it could be a limited liability company or a corporation. In every country, wherever you're based, has a, a, a corporate vehicle that you can avail yourself of. Make sure that you're using one. 
pretty early days, not day one, but certainly if you're going more than a couple months without doing that, you're really, you're either not making any sales and you're not growing your business Mm -hmm. or you're not being responsible. So just kind of do a temperature check on that. And then really the next port of call is clearing that brand name. And again, I've given you a strategy. If you don't have money to pay for a a formal brand clearance search and a sit down, GoDaddy, Google, Amazon, USPTO.gov, there is some degree of diligence you can do to make sure that your name functions as a trademark and is available, right? And then once you've got products in market, you start seeing some success, then you can register the trademark, right? In parallel, as you're getting product photos you know, taken as you're launching and growing your business, I've already given you the key. You need a work for hire agreement. You need a copyright assignment agreement. Get that in front of people. Get those signed. You know, this doesn't, this can be, this Rome wasn't built in a day. And legally speaking, your building, your business doesn't have to either. It can be very purposeful. It can be very methodical, but it has to be an ongoing process. Engaging a lawyer or doing legal things in your business is not a one-off sort of thing. It's something that occurs fairly regularly. Now, once you have a company up and running, you have a trademark registered, you know what you're doing with your copyrights. Okay, good. It's kind of wash, rinse, and repeat. There's not a ton of legal work necessarily that has to happen. Um, You've laid a good foundation, but early days, at least first year, first two years, you're going to be doing some of that stuff. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I tell everybody is that, like you said, do a domain search to see if somebody took that domain. Because even if they do not have a trademark, but they own a domain, and now you want to uh, to trademark that 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 mark you may be spending marketing dollars growing something and they are going to get your traffic by mistake yeah because you can't always get a domain even if you own a trademark because yeah. they also have some rights if they, they own that also domain have some rights as well yeah you know i mean the domain thing is really it was really interesting to kind of understand the interplay of trademarks and domain names and how they mm-hmm. interrelate you know, in cyber squatting, I mean, I remember you know, there were a lot of a lot of people that made a lot of money kind of camping out on, you know, uh, big brand domain names uh, back in the day. Again, you know, kind of my, my own journey into the law and Napster and cyber squatting and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think from a, from a business perspective, you know, having that top level domain name is really, really important and not some variation of it, not some, you know, .io or .whatever like that. Having a .com, a legitimate .com, email address that's easily distinguishable. Um, you know, there, there's, there's no mistake if someone plugs that into .com because you might know it's .io, you might know it's .co, but you know, your, your customers, your, your leads are not going to know that. They're looking for that .com yeah. and all of a sudden you've made a choice. It might be the greatest mark in the world, but because you don't have that domain name, you're losing sales and that matters. And so I agree with you uh, from a business perspective, you know, that domain name and the availability should drive a lot of decisions. Absolutely. Robert, what was the biggest business failure you had? <laughs> the biggest business failure that I've had. That's a, oh, there's been so many. I did, I actually did a, a, a post earlier in the week kind of talking about, you know, failure and, and failure is, is, is loved and hated in the entrepreneurial community. Mm-hmm. Right? Some people are like, I oh, have to fail to be able to succeed. And some people are like, no, you should never fail. I think failure is a good thing if you learn from it, right? Um, I'll give the example of, I don't know that it's the biggest, but it's the one that I'm still dealing with and, and, uh, and navigating is I, uh, was doing some product research and I found, well, I'll just tell you what it is. Uh, I decided selling a weighted blanket was going to be the way to go. I wanted to sell a weighted blanket. When I was looking at the market, the market was great. 
Uh, you know, the price point was really interesting. The volumes were good. I'm like, this is great. Nobody, I've never heard of a weighted blanket. <laughs> this is awesome. And so I, uh, despite my best efforts, it was, I was slow to get the market, right? So it took me longer. There was a pretty good disconnect between the time I evaluated the market and when I actually got it to market. And when I did, uh, I kind of re looked at the market and this was, you know, 250, 300 units of weighted blankets in. Um, wow. There's a lot of people selling a lot of weighted blankets <laughs> and they all look the same and, uh, uh-oh, and I uh, thought, but no, mine will stand out because it has a bonus item in it. You know, I know it's going to be great. My photos are great. I got, you know, people with the blanket in the photos and their world's better because of the blanket. And yeah, I, I couldn't give those away. Uh, I think I sold one or two and my BSR was just, uh, it, was just it was awful. Uh, so ultimately, I ended up pulling the blankets out of Amazon. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was tweaking keywords and PPC. I mean, I was doing everything just to try to get rid of these blankets. And uh, a colleague that I was working with kind of said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but there's this other course out there. And uh, they actually used weighted blankets as an example of something that you could sell. I'm like, oh, man. So I am currently sitting on some weighted blankets. If you are cold uh, and or you have anxiety, I've, I've got... Uh, I've got some. Uh, I've got some news for you, but that's a failure, right? Like, I, ultimately, I'm going to give them away, and, and we'll donate them. And people, there's. I actually found some really. So, taking failure and turning it into something positive. So, I've got these blankets. What am I going to do with it? Well, one, it's going to be a tax write-off because you know it's a loss, right? So, I've at least got that going for me. But can I do something more with it? So, I, I started doing some really interesting research, and there's a number of organizations out there, charitable organizations that help people with anxiety that have a need for these sorts of blankets. So I'm in the process of connecting my blankets to this organization. We'll help some kids, we'll help some anxious people, some good will come of it. But then also, anytime that you, things don't go as expected, you have to evaluate and, and ask why. And in that particular instance, I was slow to get to market. You know, I had, you know, when I was evaluating the market initially, I had too much of a lag between looking at that market and getting products in. So I've got to speed up my systems. I've got, a, I've got an opportunity to improve my business there. Also, you know, I, uh, you know, I go back and I, and I look at it. That's not as boring of a product as I would like to sell, right? That is a product that's naturally going to, for me, going to attract a lot of, you know, Facebook ads and Shopify sellers. And it's something that it's, it's a brand. I like to delve into the, the products that they, they, they do what they say on the tin. They're just, they kind of function your buying because you need them. A weighted blanket's a luxury. You know, it's not one of those things that you absolutely need. Um, and so it just really helped me kind of mm. uh, crystallize the types of products that I like to sell and a shape in the direction of that business going forward. So a little bit of a loss, but a short-term one uh, and able to do a little bit of good with it in terms of you know, getting some kids that might not have blankets. Blankets, I got a lot of them to give. And, uh, and then also just, you know, taking some lessons learned uh, and improving my business. Uh, is is uh, is key. So failure it happens happens to everybody. No one's immune. Lawyers uh, lawyers are just like everybody else in that respect. Um, but I think we the, the failure is only a bad thing if we don't get anything out of the out of the experience. Exactly. So yeah, Robert. So yeah, there's a big some big players on the weighted blanket. Yes, I, I I learned that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so well, well, Y and M has I think they had like fourteen thousand reviews on those. I mean, yeah. what we bought. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, like I said, I took that one on the chin. But uh, lesson learned: will not be entering that market or any similar market uh, like that for a good long while. Yeah, we've all been there, and and you know. I, I started many years ago, even before I was doing private label, I was selling online. 
mm-hmm. and it gets to a point where you think, you know, I'm I'm big enough, yeah, uh, to go into these markets. And some of those markets, after you get in there, yeah. you realize, I oh, oh, I'm not that big. I'm not, you're not, so. you're not that big. Or I'm, I also, I guess, another lesson from that entire experience was if you have to talk yourself into the market, you're like, no, I can compete. No, I can stand out. No, I can do this. Those are generally kind of red flags of, yeah, you're not really able to do any of those things. Why don't you go find another market uh, that that doesn't, you don't, if you have to talk yourself into it, you probably don't belong there. So yeah. When, when you have to put your product that costs $40 with a $40 discount and still nobody touches it, you're like, okay, that's bad. This this is not fun. This is not good. But again, you know, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I was very earnest when I, when I was telling you my story, like I wanted to stand in the shoes of sellers. And so when people have slow moving products and I'll get asked a lot of times, like, do you know any place I can liquidate this or what can I do? And Hey, I get it. Like I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Uh, let me see if I can figure out a way to help you and kind of mitigate that risk or that loss as best as possible. Uh, you know, and you're wiser for the wear, teach you a lesson, go on to the next thing. You know, that to me, and as I've worked with sellers in all different stages, some with already, you know, brick and mortar retailers that are coming onto Amazon, a lot of people just kind of starting as a side hustle that want to transition it into a full-time uh, gig. And the, the one characteristic that separates the people from who are successful from the ones that aren't is persistence, Right. You, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your birthright is or what education you have. You will hit a road bump in your business. You will hit a problem that either you're going to have to choose, am I going to work past this and move forward or am I going to give up and quit, right? And it's that moment. Everybody will experience it. And it's that moment that you decide who you want to be as an entrepreneur, right? Do you want to keep going and push through to get and achieve whatever dream, you know, originally started when you launched this thing? Or do you want to give up and go find the next shiny object and just get stuck in that cycle of just over and over and over of hitting frustration, hitting difficulty and giving up and starting something new? Feels like you're making progress, but you're really on a hamster wheel. You know, it, it's, it's that moment in time where you get to choose, do I want to win? Understanding that the road may be long and the road may be narrow and the road may be difficult, or do I just want to stay on this wheel going over and over and over again? Uh, no one's immune to that. And uh, only you can make that decision of what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things I, I don't, I don't like saying the word hate. So, mm-hmm. but I dislike yeah. being in the wheel, Robert. Yeah. That, that's most entrepreneurs do, but unfortunately they, they get themselves in there because it's yeah. just easier. Yeah, it, it is. And it feels because it feels like you're making progress, right? It feels like you're, you're oh, constantly I'm, running. Yeah, so constantly, you're constantly running. I must be I, going I, somewhere. And, and that's why I think it's important to have good people around you that, that will kind of smack you in the head every once in a while to, to give you some reality checks. And I, I'm fortunate to have people like that in my life. Uh, I expect that of them and they expect that of me. You know, here in the last year, I mean, I and it's out of, out of you know, just curiosity. It's out of, of interest. It's out of passion. But I love to explore all sorts of different things, right? And, I, and I've noticed myself, and I actually had some people comment. They're like, you know what? You're, you're kind of spread thin. Like you're a little bit, you're doing a little bit of everything, but are you really doing anything? And, and I, I sat and I thought, I'm like, you know, that's kind of true. And so I literally circle of focus, like I have one big circle and I've got one maybe two things in there, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm focused on. And if, if what, 
activity is presenting itself is not in that circle. It might be the greatest activity in the world. It might be the greatest cause in the world. It might be the greatest whatever in the world. I just don't have the bandwidth for that. This is my focus right now. This is what I care most about. This is what I'm zeroing in on. And so, you know, having, you know, having people around you that are like-minded that, you, you know, will hold you to a standard and that expect you to hold them to a standard, that's, that system, having that in place is really, really powerful. And that's so, so beneficial. I really, really like people that can give you a honest feedback without being negative. You know, sometimes yeah. people are very negative and they tell you, oh, you suck at doing this. Yeah. And that's not feedback at all. But the ones that go out of their way to give you feedback to help you, mm-hmm. it actually works. I had somebody yesterday call me or they texted me, asked me to call them about the podcast. Um. And they noticed that my sound wasn't the best. And okay. I have, like we spoke earlier, yeah. I, have, I have a $500 microphone. Yeah. That, and my sound was terrible. And I listened to the podcast and I have to do something about it. So I've mm. got to figure out what it is. <laughs> but, but it's good that you got that feedback, right? And, and again, I mean, I think we really are, I forget what it's like the, the, the nine closest people to us or actually who we are in terms of personality or whatever, whatever the, 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 the research yeah. goes. But it, but it really is true. I mean, you know, if you are surrounded by negative people, you will be negative. Or if you're surrounded by people that are critical in a good way, you know, they're pointing that out saying, listen, your podcast is awesome, but your sound's a little bit off. You know, you might want to think about doing something differently because you have an important message to share yeah, that's, that's valid criticism. That's valid feedback. You want to hear that. You might, it might sting, you know, when, when yeah. uh, someone was telling me with the weight of blankets, they're like, you know, these weight of blankets, man, what, what were you doing? You know, you're not big enough for that. No, it stings, but no, you're right. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what it is. I don't know what I was thinking. So now let me navigate that. Uh, good. Learn from that failure. You know, oh, you're too you're spread a lot, you're pretty thin. Are you, are you making the progress that you really want to make in this particular area of your business? I'm really not, you know, thanks for pointing that out because I'm going to have to make some tough choices and I'll have to push these to the parking lot and get to those things later. Here's my focus. Now having that accountability, having that network, uh, having those friends and colleagues that, that are in the fight with you. Um, and it takes a while to find those sorts of people and to develop those relationships. But when you do, it is, uh, it's every day is pretty refreshing. It really is. Awesome. Robert, before I let you go, yeah. I always ask people where they can find you and give your website, but I was looking at your website, yeah. which is a one page funnel. Yes. And yes. I find that, I find that to be genius because from what I can see, there's about 300 words on the site and there are, there's no way for your customer to get lost because there's a few calls to action, but they cannot get distracted and lost. And I love the simplicity of that. Well, so what, was that done on purpose? Yeah, it was, it was done uh, both out of purpose and necessity. You know, I mean, one of the things, and uh, I, I'm very much a believer in funnels and meeting clients where they are or potential clients where they are. And so uh, my website is very much based upon if you are a private label seller, you might be interested in these things. And, and ultimately, if you head to privatelabelprotection.com, you can download my brand protection blueprint. It'll lay out in great detail you know, kind of the four stages of private label selling, talking about forming a business entity, talking about bulletproofing your brand, weaponizing your work, safeguarding your sales, giving you a nice cheat sheet or a roadmap for private label success. Um, you, so you can certainly head out and uh, check me out over there. I'd also say if you're on Facebook, uh, my Facebook group is the most aptly, accurately uh, named Facebook group in on Facebook. It is Legal Protection for Private Label Amazon Sellers. 
It is what it says on the tin. Uh, we have a great community in there. We've got about 1,200 people. And I go in uh, pretty much weekly and do lunch and learn. So I'll present a legal topic. We'll do some Q&A. I'll upload videos. I did one yesterday about plans of action and how to put together a proper plan of action. We have a little bit of fun. You know, we did, uh, you know, some business mindset sort of stuff in there. Over the weekend, we had a, you know, what are you into this weekend? You know, pictures where it didn't happen. And we have people from all over the world. You know, some one guy was you know, bass fishing and he caught this ginormous bass. Other people were doing bonfires. Other people were hanging out by the pool. I was in a park with some people that were working on their business. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a group that's meant to educate folks on private label selling. Uh, it's, a, it's a group, that, you know, we have a little bit of fun. We, we learn from each other. We're able to network with other sellers. I mean, you know, maybe even find some of that community we we're talking about that helps you, you know, keep you accountable. So legal protection for private label Amazon sellers over on Facebook is a, is a good way to connect with me and uh, learn all things about private label law. There you go. Guys, I'll have these on the show notes so you can check out privatelabelprotection.com and you can join me and Robert on the Legal Protection for Private Label Amazon Sellers Facebook group. Robert, thank you so much for this. We're obviously going to stay in touch. Uh, we're, we're in the same group and um, all the best. Yeah, all the best. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much and uh, appreciate everybody listening. Hopefully everybody's a little bit wiser for the wear. They're ready for the battle that is war and uh, doing business on Amazon, but you follow those steps and some of those tips and tactics we talked about, uh, you'll be well prepared and able to weather the storm. Awesome. Thank you.